Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of five issues for just £10. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello and welcome back to The Critic podcast. A campaign is underway to elect members to the General Synod of the Church of England under a Save the Parish banner. Their campaign leader, Marcus Walker, the rector of St. Bartholomew's, described it as the last chance to save the system that has defined Christianity in this country for thousands of years. Campaigners say the Church of England hierarchy already squeezes parish churches and is planning to use vital funds to open new churches in places like cafes and cinemas rather than prioritising the existing parish structure. But critics say the movement fails to recognise the dire reality of church attendance and are afraid of embracing new radical ideas that could reverse the fortunes of the established church. David Scullion speaks to Alison Milbank, Professor of Theology and Literature at the University of Nottingham, and the founder of the campaign, Marcus Walker. It's not often that Church of England internal politics spills out into the secular press, but the Save the Parish campaign is notable in managing to achieve a lot of traction in a short space of time. With me to discuss what's going on is Alison Milbank, who's a Professor of Theology and Literature at Nottingham University, and the priest, vicar and canon theologian at the parish church of Southwell Minster in, Nor- in Nottinghamshire. And joining her is Marcus Walker, who is a critic columnist and also the rector uh, of St Bartholomew the Great, London's oldest Anglican parish church and the founder of the Save the Parish campaign. Now, Marcus, you, uh, you recently opened up your church to a large group of plotters with traditional views on church parishes uh, who want to just ruin the Archbishop of Canterbury's exciting new plans to let people open churches in new hip relevant places like Chinese takeaways and cafes or even just online. Have I, um, have I mischaracterised that at all? Uh, slightly, yes, I would say. Um, the issue isn't about opening churches per se in you know, Chinese restaurants or cafes or anything like that. That isn't... No, where the, where churches open isn't the particular question. The issue here is how we spend quite scarce resources that the church has left. So, for example, the Chinese restaurant situation was the church was a special fund that used to be spent on parishes, on parish ministry, on the ordinary day-to-day stuff of being the church in the Church of England, that used to be called the Darlow Fund, being redirected so that you could spend, so I think it was up to five million pounds was spent buying a former Chinese restaurant, turning it into a church, spending the money on four different ministers, all in this, uh, all in this, this sort of newly refurbished building, two minutes away from the parish church, which has one vicar spread over five churches. And so the question there, it isn't about you know, whether it used to be a Chinese takeaway, whether it used to be an opera house, or whether it used to be, you know, or whether, the question is that how you spend the resources and how we actually focus the resources that we have and the people that we have in the best way possible. And the Save the Parish movement is saying that the best way possible is through and with the ancient parish network that runs right the way across England and has been the whole way in which the Church of England has been the Church of England. In fact, even before it was called, you know, even before it was the, the Church of England with the split from Rome. Alison, you uh, you made it down to London to this this plotters meeting from um, uh, Nottinghamshire. Uh, what was it that what was it that attracted you to the uh, to Marcus's call? 
Well, I think it's the potential of the parish. Um, and that's what I think is so sad about the way we've done mission for the last 20 years, probably, that we've treated the parish as if we like it. I'm sure loads of the people in the hierarchy have a sentimental attachment in theory, but they haven't seen it as crucially important in terms of resourcing and, and mission for the future in how we engage people in the present day. They, they treat it as if it belongs to the past and it does, and that's really good. And, um, but it's got a lot of traction in speaking to current problems, in particular, uh, our sense of dislocation, our need for stability, um, a sense of the importance of locality, all this is going to be so important as demographics change and people move back probably to market towns and villages and in the climate crisis where we're all going to have to be more local and think more creatively about our relationship to our built and our natural world. So that's what drew me. And part of what's really about these money things is why not connect the vicar with five parishes to the money you're spending exactly. elsewhere. Why not think of this holistically instead of like really bad 1980s management, thinking that the way that you'll save money is to, to you know, the lowest level you, you sort of get rid of and you put new, you know, new glitzy things instead. This is a policy that is known to fail in management. So what's what's actually going on here? So you've got, we've got parish churches, you've got the, the country is divided into every part of it is divided into to parishes and there's a pot of money that goes towards parishes and what is what have I got this right so what the Church of England is saying is uh we're going to use some of this money instead to open up new churches that aren't don't have their own parish in kind of slightly quirky locations in order to try and kind of connect with people to be, to be fair it's a, it's, a, it's a much bigger thing than that that's one small little area of it what we've seen over the course of the last 40 to 50 years is the slow but steady um, denuding of the parishes of their assets and resources. So, for example, in 1976, all of the parishes' glebe land and endowments, this was the stuff that had been built up over generations by parishioners, by people who'd left money to each parish in order to pay for the parish priests, the incumbents, were taken, all gathered together, centralised and put under the control of the diocese. Slowly but surely control over the parsonages, the uh, houses that in 1836, all parishes were ordered to buy or build. So again, parishes spent their money on these things. These were then centralised. Over the course of the next 40 years, the monies that have been gathered from the parishes put into the central pot have been hopelessly squandered. I think a study in 2016 said that the church has managed to lose eight billion pounds on the sale of parsonages, that's vicarages and rectories. Um, and then what they do is they the, the, the diocese then turn around and say, right, if you want to have a vicar or a rector, you've got to pay for it completely. And of course, they've actually already done that with the, with the endowments, with the glebes, with the parsonages that were gathered together in the promise that these would always be paid for. So you're getting higher and higher and higher charges that are being made on the parishes by the by central 
sort of by the diocese, making it harder and harder and harder for parishes actually to survive, especially since all their assets have been taken away so they can't actually you know, do anything with them. So what we've got is this sort of using of the parish, this, this, this most local, this most basic in a good way, um, uh, unit of the church as a kind of milchkan that can then be spent on all sorts of centralizing initiatives. I mean, one of the interesting things over the last 10 years is the absolute proliferation of central posts. So the number of archdeacons has exploded in dioceses whilst parishes are being cut. You get all sorts of, sort of positions with silly titles like light of Christ enabler in I think the Sheffield diocese or the director of uh, of justice, peace, and the integrity of creation, all of these posts that, are, you know, that cost money, that could be being spent on having people on the front line. And on the front line means, of course, um, doing food banks, looking after people who've just been bereaved, christening and welcoming new children into the world, um, having the church open for people who are devastated um, in the midst of a pandemic. All of the, all of the little, little things that happen on a local level don't happen when everything is coagulating in the sort of a, at a central management tier. So you, is this a case of, I mean, is, it, is this the kind of um, little old lady who's um, digging into her, her pension to, to put some money in the offering plate? How much of that is going to her own parish vicar or priest? And, and how much is that is going to kind of middle management? vast sums going to the middle management in London, uh, you're expected, each parish is expected to pay £85,000, which is a, a quite astonishing amount of money. You know, it's one thing if you're a central, you know, City of London parish that might be able to open up for concerts and things like that. And I'm very lucky that I am able to do that, but I'm equally aware that a heck of a lot of parishes aren't able to do that, especially if they're not in the, if they're not in the centre. Um, especially if they're not in London. Um, and the amount that's being demanded of parishes is quite ridiculous for the amount that they think that, that, that say, even if you were to say they should be paying for their priests and for their buildings and pretend that they haven't already paid for them, 85,000 is a perfectly ridiculous amount. And of course, it breaks the back of an awful lot of parishes that raise lots and lots. The little old ladies, you say, putting in their £10 a week or £20 a week. Finally, that all of that is going into the centre. None of it's being spent on actually doing the stuff that parishes should be doing in their own local areas. Um, Alison, you're a theologian. What's the kind of what's the theological principle at stake here? The, the principle at stake is one of incarnation, of the which is the kind of doctrine that God takes on human nature and becomes takes on humanity in a particular place, in a particular time, and honours our embodiment. So church is about, in, it's about inclusivity, it's about locality, it's about welcome, it's about hospitality, it's about worship, the centrality of calling people beyond themselves. Um, and it's all on the principle that we believe that that's what our God did. And every, every church witnesses to the fact that this place matters which I which as I've said in my article is so important in a diocese like mine where we have ex-mining communities which have lost 
you know, they've lost their raison d'etre in so many ways and everything goes. And once the pub goes and the shop goes, all that's left really is the church to say that this is a place and you matter and we're here for you. And that is a very strong idea of the divine as bound up with our ordinary lives um, and in their specificity. And, you know, that once the church, I mean, once you no longer have priests, churches are going to be closed. Somebody's worked out from the forecasts that we can see in legislation that we're talking something over in the in the short term, probably over the 300 mark. Um, it, it's going to be very, very difficult to sustain this kind of theology, the idea that the Church of England is a Christian presence in every community. Um, you uh, you say in your article in The Critic that uh, that the Church of England hierarchy see the parish system as kind of uh, a bit of an embarrassment, or I can't remember what you said, like, like some kind of knick-knack that your aunt has gifted you. Is that really fair? I mean, is Justin Welby not just looking at these statistics and saying, look, the Church of England is declining uh, and the parish system's, parish system's not really the future. We need to go where people are. We need to try and reinvigorate this and we need to do something quite radical. If it upsets people, then so be it. Well, I think the problem is that we, we are dealing with a period of secularisation. There's no doubt about that. And things like the Sunday trading bill were devastating in terms of people's habits, people's understanding of how you spend a Sunday. And obviously we are all suffering from that. But secularization runs through us Christians too, as Charles Taylor has pointed out in his book, A Secular Age. So that instead of trusting in the value of what we offer, Certainly since um, Mission Shape Church in 2004, where the parish was not seen in that document as connected to the future. So if you stop believing in your liturgies, your practices, if you stop connecting the parish to all the outreach you do do, and remember, it's really only kind of very middle class people are in networks. In Nottingham, most people don't even own a car. Um, they are local by perforce, all this, this um, leaving the parish out is a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. So this is why I call it a knick-knack, because that's the way they write about it in reports, even though they will say lovely things. And for example, um, Archbishop Stephen Cottrell said in a recent um, document that mission mainly happens through the parish that through parish initiatives, but in fact, this is because most of the mission or outreach is something called messy church, which parishes do quite well. But the idea of it is to kind of keep it as a kind of separate community so they don't always get the benefit back. So they haven't been kind of, I don't think, as I say, I'm sure they've all got nice warm feelings, but they haven't done anything as, as uh, Marcus says they've taken away the resources more and more while expecting more and more of clergy being in larger and larger multiple benefices which are sort of set up to fail because you just can't model pastoral care if you've got up to and I think the worst scenario certainly from my own experience is somebody with a good 20. 
um, <laughs> you know, how could he possibly operate like that? And um, they, they, they've kind of, I would argue that they, they haven't put the resources in, they haven't put the faith in our own practices. And I'm sure Marcus would agree. Absolutely. I think, uh, David, to, to an extent, I think you're right. I think that the Archbishops of Canterbury and York and all of the clever management consultants that they get in to design um, each new strategy that goes on to be launched and then tends to go on to sink. But they're looking at the same figures that we are and they're looking at the declining numbers of people attending church and the church finances and things like that. And you're right, I think that they've said in their hearts and probably also in their heads, current system isn't working, let's do something exciting and new. But the thing is, they don't say that. I would welcome that debate. I think that's actually properly a debate that needs to happen. Mm -hmm. And I would wholeheartedly engage in that debate and say, no, actually the real resourcement of um, the Church of England is its parishes and the best way that we're going to bring people back in is going to be through the local. But I can have that argument and I might win it and I might lose it and people might be convinced by it, people might not. But we're not actually having that argument. Nice words are being said, oh, we love the parish, we love the parish, the parish is cuddly, we'd never want to do anything mean to the parish. And then they'll introduce something like the um, mission and pastoral uh, measure that there's that being revised at the moment. So this is the big thing the next synod is going to have to deal with, which would essentially make it hugely easy to for the diocese to close churches, sack vicars, um, and make them homeless, strip them of their parsonages, completely disregarding all of the protections currently in law for local communities to be able to try to save their parishes. And so they speak nice words, but then they introduce measures like this that will just give the people who spent the last 40 to 50 years wandering all the assets of the parish and designing new and exciting um, sort of missional ideas that end up doing nothing, giving them the power to go and close all of these, all of these local uh, churches, mm -hmm. destroying the connection between each of these communities with their church and their history and their future. Just, um, just explain that then. Explain that measure that's that's uh, that's being proposed because that's the target, isn't it? That's the target you're aiming at. That you want one of the big targets, support. absolutely. Yeah. So this is a measure. The the the, the mission and pastoral measure is uh, two thousand one was passed, which made it a little bit easier to be able to for the the central church to be able to overrule the local and start shutting churches down. Now, there are, of course, times when churches need to close and there are times when it just isn't possible to maintain that parochial presence in that little area. Sometimes it's because you've got a complete change of economics. Like you've got vast churches in tiny villages in Norfolk that were built when those villages were much bigger because of the wool trade, but then the wool trade collapsed and there's no need, for, you know, and those huge churches ceased to be ministering to a huge, con to a huge congregation because they'd all gone. Um, the same is true of various parts of the country where the demographics have shifted and there just aren't Christians who are, you know, who are there who are likely to be going to, ch to the church. Um, but quite often things are closed because, oh, well, we need to, we, an arbitrary decision is chosen. We need to close one church in every deanery or in every area. Sometimes it's because uh, the people at the centre don't like one particular vicar or because they've been a rubbish vicar, but actually the area there is perfectly fertile if you put a good person in. There are all sorts of reasons why these decisions should be taken locally and why if local, you know, the local people are able to rally around and save their church, 
Quite often they will, sometimes they won't, but those are the questions that should be taken locally. With the measure that's being proposed now, it will be absolutely easy, it will be perfectly easy for um, the diocese just to order churches to close, make priests redundant, um, or keep priests in an area and just sell their house from underneath them um, without the parish getting anything sort of in return. The way, you're, uh, the, the way you're describing this, it, 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 it strikes me as um, some slight parallels to the, kind of the beaching cuts with the, the railways. So I think we, how we, I think how we, we, how sad we are about that now, and how we wish we could open them again, in many cases. Um, I, I don't know if you uh, both have managed to read uh, an article by James Mumford, who, who manages to both criticise you both personally, which is, uh, which is a bonus. Um, he says uh, to you, uh, Marcus. He says uh, that you have. You've dismissed a style of church set up in a cinema or bar or converted Chinese takeaway, but this has the whiff of snobbery about it. It seems to suggest that people exist for the sake of the church, not the church for the sake of people. Jonah felt the same way about the Ninevites. He, not they, were engorged by the obliging whale. Well, I tend to think when you start being, when you start making personal attacks, you've run out of arguments. <laughs> Alison, you don't, you're not spared by this. Uh, uh, he says, uh, th th then there's a criticism that any um, ecclesiastical attempt to innovate, to do things differently, to experiment, is, as academic Alison Milbank puts it, a capitulation to market values. This, again, simply isn't true. The church is merely trying to reach as many souls as it can. What do you say to that, Alison? Well, sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. If you've got a new estate and you've got people meeting in somebody's home to pray and to begin to build up a church community in that place. I'm not at all against it. Um, we wrote a book where we were looking at people who were themselves admitting and glorying in taking on commercial values. And, you know, there's, the church is, is not a business. It needs good administration. Everything needs good administration. Um, but um, I think to, to claim that I'm just against things for that reason. I'm actually, even in my own cathedral, I'm actually have been during um, lockdown, I've been planning a kind of equivalent of a kind of outdoor worshipping community for families where, you know, it's, it's a kind of, kind of green gathering as well. Because, you know, I'm not kind of against all these things. I'm doing a kind of... I'm actually working on a mission initiative myself, so how could I be? Um, but some of them glory in these market values and in commodifying. And um, in the past, the church always used things like gyms in the East End, football clubs, drama clubs, all sorts of ways to engage people. But they engage people in worthwhile activities. And then those were porous to more deeper engagement in the worshipping community. Um, the idea that you would follow people's kind of um, sort of follow their kind of, you know, rather like their kind of Amazon profile and um, use commodification as a way to kind of build up communities. That's what I was against. It's just a particular critique of something that people have embraced quite openly. So I'm not, I'm not, um, you know, I'm not sort of saying something against what people claim they are doing. So I think that's a bit, as you say, it's a bit of the ad feminine there. <laughs> <laughs>
Uh, one of the uh, one of the things that fascinated me about some of these proposals was the idea of an online church. I mean, what you know, what theologically, what is, is that even exist? Can you have an online church that's just online only? Well, it depends what you mean. I mean, I was one of the first. I think I was the first person really to go online um, in the CV, breaking the Archbishop of Canterbury's instructions that, contrary to the rules to the laws of England, that allowed us to go into our churches and live stream and broadcast. The Archbishop of Canterbury forbade us from doing that. And I went in and sort of, and well, disobeyed him and did it. Now, you know, doing a thing that now the Church of England declares is a wonderful and excellent thing we should do, but at the time brought a heap of opprobrium on me. I'm all in favour of us using modern technology in order to reach people who can't otherwise get to church. And that's, you know, it's wonderful to be able to do that. And some services lend themselves better than others to it. Um, I would say Evensong um, is, Evensong works better than communion because for a rather obvious reason, communion you know, demands physical presence in order to be able to eat. And at some point in the future, I hope drink. Um, I also found, for example, having a, a form of prayer, Lectio Divina, a holy, holy reading, works actually better on Zoom than in person because you can mute everybody and you don't hear people sort of breathing or scraping their chair or snoring. Um, and, and actually, you know, in some, some ways, technology actually opens up our ability to encounter the divine. And that's especially true, of course, of people who are in care homes and can't come to church now. And if there are ways that we can bring God and bring the worship of God into their rooms in a way that we simply didn't even think we had the ability to do three years ago. That is excellent and wonderful. But nothing, but fundamentally, Christianity is a tactile, is a physical religion. Because as Alison said, Christ became man. His, you know, the, the uh, way of becoming a Christian is to be baptized with water. The way of encountering the living God is through communion, eating bread and drinking wine. Priests are made priests by the laying on of hands. The sick are anointed with oil. It's a very, very physical religion because we're, we are part of a community. From the very beginning, I mean, Christ's great commandment that he gave on Maundy Thursday, you love one another as I have loved you. Our way to God is through other people. And we shouldn't look to make it a, uh, a sort of one-to-one -one thing through a computer or through a screen. We should be looking to how we can bring people together to see Christ in one another and through one another, really to encounter the divine. And I suppose that's a point that uh, that nobody, no Christians really ever had to ever had to make in the past because there was no technology by which you could not do things physically. Alison, what do you what do you think about the kind of the theology of meeting online rather than in person. I agree absolutely with Marcus, but it's interesting. One of my colleagues, Tim Hutchings, has done a lot of work on online churches um, and particularly the early ones. The interesting thing was most people who were going to them also belonged to a physical church, mm -hmm. but sometimes it was not giving them enough fellowship. And so they recreated quite traditional churches. I think people thought that once you had the ability to do online churches you would do something radically different but they didn't they all have steeples 
<laughs> they all have pews. Um, and these people were kind of looking for a slightly deeper engagement than their church community was giving them. You know, churches are not, um, are not perfect. But I think this idea that if you can physically go to church and you decide, no, I'd rather stay at home, you are cutting yourself off from the body. Where do you say sorry to each other? How do you actually reconcile by sharing the peace? Um, we, we need to be there in body because we do not exist as individuals. We only exist as the body of Christ. Um, Christ knows us in his church, as one theologian wrote. And so the idea that you should sort of sit at home doing your own communion, as some people would like to say, and it kind of the magic will somehow pass through the internet. That's not what it's all about, because what do we offer in the, the Eucharist? We offer ourselves. We, the community is part of the body of Christ, which is offered and received. And that has to be bodily, phys physical, with people you don't necessarily get on, that you really need the peace because, you know, you've had a row with your family before you got there. They might not be people that you'd kind of meet in any other form, and you need to be there physically to reconcile, to pray, and to be blessed and sent out. And... Um, it's absolutely wonderful that we can include people who can only pray with us spiritually. But I think if you ask those people in that care home, if they, you know, they could meet, they would. Uh, when is this big vote then? When, when is this happening? So the elections are, I suppose, they've been called now. Nominations close some point between the 1st and the 8th of September, depending upon the diocese. Uh, and then over the course of the subsequent month uh, and a half, voting is open and people are able to send out a manifesto and campaign and do all that sort of thing. And then there's a voting and then there's a vote. And then the new synod as elected will meet in November. So what's you, what are you asking, uh, what are you asking the Save the Parish uh, uh, campaign members to do? So what we're hoping is that they is that people who might have very 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 different theologies, whether they might be an evangelical, they might be a Catholic, they might be a person who doesn't believe that women can be priests, they might be like Allison, a woman priest. They could be, you know, all the other issues are ones that they might campaign on separately, but they would all commit to a number of uh, I suppose a, a broad objectives and to commit to stand under the save the save the parish banner as well as any other banners that they might happen to want to campaign on so in a way the thing about this is we're saying this is more important than those other questions this is more important than what type of music you might want to have in your local you know in your local church because it doesn't matter what music you're having in churches that are closed in 15 years time um, it doesn't really matter, you know, the questions as to who should or shouldn't get married in churches are almost irrelevant if the church isn't here in a generation. Yeah. So you can have those fights too, but if there's something we should be able to rally around, we should be able to get together on, it is to save the parish. Well, sadly, that's all we have time for today. Uh, Alison Milbank and Marcus Walker, thank you so much for coming on the Critic Podcast. Not at all. Thank you. Pleasure. listening to this podcast why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door 
Subscribe today with the current offer of five issues for £10 by heading to our website www.thecritic.co.uk.